0: Take your Bibles out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 Beginning in verse 7 We want to begin looking today at the subject matter When God says, well done When God says, well done Verse 7, chapter 3 And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write The words of the Holy One, the True One Who has the key of David Who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, behold I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie... Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That right there is probably the most commented on verse uh, in the entire book of Revelation. Uh, perhaps alongside of chapter 12. When we get to chapter 12, we will meet a woman in chapter 12 that the debate is, who is that woman? Uh, Other than chapter 12, verse 10 here is probably the most written about and commented on verse. Verse 11 goes on to say, I am coming soon, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, this morning that is our prayer that we would hear what your Holy Spirit says saying to us, God, thank you for your love for us, for your love for the church. We know that while the country is more concerned about the state of the union, that you are more concerned about the state of the church. And so, Father, we thank you for these letters that describe to us what you commend and what you condemn about the church. And Father, like Philadelphia, I pray that we would have that commendation of having been found faithful. Lord, I pray for that one in the congregation this morning who perhaps in the past has joined a church. But they've never been joined to Christ. They can never think of a time in their life that they have been born again. That they have been reconciled to a holy God sensed that peace and joy, that that wonderful sense of redemption and reconciliation whereby they were made a new creation in Christ. The old things passed away and all things became new in their life. Father, if they've not had that experience, I pray that this hour your spirit would speak to their heart. That that might be their experience today. And God, those of us who have had that experience, that our hearts would be assured that we would sense that confirmation in our walk with you. And that there would be a renewed sense of dedication to you and your purposes Father, you have left us in this world for a purpose. May we be about that purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, writing to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, said that he had been praying for that congregation. And one of the prayers he said that he made for them is that he prayed that they would please God In all respects Well beloved that ought to be one of our ambitions in life that we would please God in all respects And I think that's one of the main reasons why the Holy Spirit has seen fit to give us these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 That we might know what God commends in a church and that likewise we might know what God condemns in a church. Now so far we've seen from the letter of the church to Ephesus that a church must maintain its first love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And looking at the second church, the church at Smyrna, we saw that they were a small and suffering congregation and yet they had remained true. And so what a wonderful example they were. And then from the letter to the church at Pergamum, we saw that a church must remain morally and ethically pure, regardless of the temptations in society that we might feel to compromise. And then from looking at the letter to the church at Thyatira, we saw that there's a great need for churches to remain doctrinally pure. And then last week, looking at the church of Sardis, we saw that a church must remain vital and renewed and be on the alert. We must not be religiously alive while being spiritually dead. And that's a constant threat in any generation Now today I want us to learn from the example of Philadelphia Now you'll notice that this letter is a letter of encouragement Jesus doesn't simply point out what is wrong in a church fellowship He commends those who are faithful The church at Philadelphia was faithful And this is a letter of unmixed praise Now that makes this letter in stark contrast to the letters to Sardis and Laodicea. As Jesus addressed Sardis and Laodicea, there were no words of encouragement to give those fellowships. There were only words of condemnation. But when we look here at uh, this particular church, the church at Philadelphia, we see just the opposite. There were no words of condemnation, only words of commendation. It's often been said that if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. (laughs) Now, Philadelphia, I suppose, was about as perfect a church as you could find this side of heaven. Now, what we're going to learn this morning is that a church must endure and persevere and hold fast... To that which is true. And if we will be obedient in doing that, God will open doors in front of us that here today we would not even be able to imagine or write the script for. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the church. The church at Philadelphia was in a city that was dangerously volcanic. The Greek geographer and philosopher and historian by the name of Strabo called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. Many residents had grown weary of the constant threat and had simply moved on to other areas. Now those who remained were often in great fear of the next quake. According to Sir William Ramsey, many of the inhabitants moved outside of the city into the countryside and they made it a practice to build their homes with special pillars or braces supporting devices that would strengthen both the the walls and the ceilings of their dwellings. Now from what we know, the church at Philadelphia lasted for many, many centuries. They even stood firm after the whole region was overrun by the Muslims. As far as we know, this church right here being addressed in this letter today existed till about the mid or late 1300s. Now I want you to notice the commendation that he gives in verse 8. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. And so I don't want you to grow alarmed as you look at the outline I've given you. And you see that we're not advancing that quickly through the outline. I don't want you to panic. Because we're going to be under this point for the majority of time this morning. The commendation. Jesus says there in verse 8, I know your works, behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but a little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What tremendous words the Lord Jesus had for this congregation. Again, there is no word of condemnation, only commendation. Now, I want you to notice as he encourages this fellowship, he pulls out three specific things to encourage them with regards to. He says, first of all, you have a little power. Secondly, you've kept my word. And thirdly, you have not denied my name. Let's look at those one at a time. First of all, you have a little power. Now I want us to think about this commendation for a minute this morning. Here was a church that scholars believe was probably small in number and not particularly wealthy. And yet they were faithful with what they had been given. Sardis, on the other hand, that we looked at last week was big and rich and yet they were not good stewards with what they had been blessed with. The world says that to be great you need to be rich and big and powerful and you need to have more than the next guy. It can be kind of discouraging to even read some of the literature in in church growth strategies today because it seems like in much of that literature one of the goals is to be big and powerful. Now it's been refreshing I think in recent years to see a a renewed interest in church health. And you're reading a lot more about church health now in church growth literature and I think that's a good change because a healthy church ought to grow. As a healthy church is committed to the work of the Lord. But in the world we think of things being big and powerful and that's what grabs our attention and admiration. But in the church what we need is godliness. Godliness. Our motive must be to be right with God and have God in everything that we do that in all ways God is at the center of our lives and our ministries and we desire His honor and His blessings. John MacArthur has an excellent little book out on America which serves as a great analogy to what we're talking about here concerning the church. Now again in his book he's talking about America but you can can lay the church alongside of what he writes about. What he does in that book he takes James chapter 4 and he talks about how God draws near to a people. What are the conditions for God to draw near to a people? And he talks about how we say in our slogans and in our songs, God bless America. But then he asks the question, but can God bless America? And he's not trying to be offensive, just honest. He makes the case that when you look at the principles in James 4 and 2 Chronicles 7.14 and you put those principles together, it is doubtful, highly doubtful that in our nation that we are even in a position whereby God could bless us. In fact, he makes the case that for God to bless us, God would actually have to deny what he has said or the conditions for blessing. And so God would have to compromise his word, his integrity, and his holiness in order to bless us. Same with churches. Can God bless us based on both our heart and our hands? Our beliefs and our work? Philadelphia was a faithful church They met the conditions for blessing And so God moved into that fellowship And he blessed them richly Now folks it's a reminder to me once again That you don't have to be big or strong Or extremely gifted or talented What Christ is looking for is faithfulness You look at that parable in Matthew 25 of the talents and God gave to one guy or the master in the parable standing for Christ. He gave one guy five talents, another two and another one. And while he departed for his journey, a symbol of the Lord departing in the ascension before he returns in the second coming. They were to be busy using those talents for the glory of their master. Now, when he returned and it was the day of accountability, he did not hold the guy with two talents accountable to the same degree of the guy with five talents. The guy with two talents was only accountable for what he did with the two. The guy with one was not held accountable for two and he was not held accountable for five. He was only held accountable for what he had done with the one. And so what's the message? What God is looking for in our lives and what God is looking for in a fellowship is are we being responsible stewards with what God has given to us? Are you being a good steward with what God has blessed you with? You may look at your life and say, you know what, I just feel like I don't have a great deal to offer. I feel like compared to others... I don't have that much of the world's goods. I don't have a big position. I don't see myself in the church as being particularly gifted when I compare myself with others. But again, ladies and gentlemen, that is not the question. The question is, what are you doing with what God has given to you? What are you doing with what God has blessed you with? The Lord says to those that are faithful he will increase what they have There are some of you here today far more gifted in teaching than others But maybe the other teacher who's less gifted More fruitfulness is actually coming out of his teaching There are some here this morning that don't have the resources that others have And yet they're faithful with what they've been given And God is blessing their lives you see, God doesn't measure things the way we measure things in the world. Philadelphia was a church of little strength and yet God said that they were strong. The commendation of the Lord was probably very different from what the world would have said about them. The world would have looked at the church at Philadelphia and seen a weak church by worldly standards and yet His strength is made perfect in our weakness. I think the reason God doesn't bless us oftentimes is we get too big for our britches. Isn't it amazing how God can bless our lives when we humble ourselves before him and we say, God, whatever I am, whatever I have, I'm going to submit my life to you. I'm going to put everything into your hands and I'm going to see what you're able to do with my life. It's amazing what God's able to do in a life of a person with that kind of attitude And a church with that kind of attitude I think of Gideon when Gideon faced the Midianites there were way too many in his army and way too many resources and God said I got to whittle you down I got to get you smaller because if I don't and you will beat the Midianites then, uh, then you're going to be saying hey we just beat the Midianites because we're a bigger army and stronger and have more resources and none of the glory is going to be given to God. And so God said, Gideon, I'm going to thin down your ranks. And God kept thinning down the ranks until where where the battle looked like it was impossible. There was no way that Israel could beat the Midianites and yet they did. And then consequently everybody, all everybody could do was stand back and give glory and praise to God. Because they knew God had done it. It's amazing what God can do with people when they have that attitude. When they get low enough before God and they acknowledge their weaknesses. And so I would ask you today, what's your attitude and what are you doing with your resources? Are you faithful? Read about two shoe salesmen who went decades and decades ago to Africa. After a few days there, one of the employees wrote back to the company and said, Get me out of here. Nobody over here wears shoes. The other guy wrote to the company and said, Gather up all the shoes in America that you can find and send them over here because nobody wears shoes. Same opportunity, they saw saw the opportunities differently What are you doing with your opportunities? Again, you may say, I'm weak, I have little strength, who am I? What can I do? What difference can I make? Well, we can be like the church at Philadelphia They had little strength, they were weak And yet God blessed them tremendously Secondly, in this commendation, I want you to notice, he says, you've kept my word. I truly do not believe that God will bless a congregation that does not have a high regard for scripture. That is foundational to any ministry. All over America, we see liberal denominations and liberal churches that are drying up on the vine and they are dying. You ought to get a book by Thomas Reeves that's called The Empty Church. The Empty Church. And he's one of those guys inside the mainline denominations. And he's writing about why in the world would anybody today want to go to a church that doesn't believe anything anymore. He writes about some of these churches and some of these ministers who stand in the pulpit to preach and they don't even open the Bible, they don't believe anything anymore. And he says, why in the world would anybody want to get up on a Sunday morning and get dressed and go to a place that doesn't believe anything or just says, whatever you believe, one way is good as the other way, just kind of take your choice and go with it. He says, what what motivation does a church like that have to minister to anybody, to to, to do anything for Christ in the world? And so he he catalogs some of the things that liberal churches and liberal denominations are doing. He catalogs some things that will blow your mind at how far they're departing from the gospel. And they're dying. Again, I do not believe God will bless a fellowship that does not have a high regard for Scripture. At Philadelphia, they had a high regard for the Word of God. He says, you've kept my word. They had obeyed the word of God. Folks, obedience is what God is after. They both had the word and kept the word at Philadelphia. Have you ever stopped to think about the privilege you and I have of holding a Bible in our hands? It's God's love letter to us. And it's God's instruction manual. God said to Joshua in Joshua 1, imagine being in Joshua's shoes. I mean, Joshua had to fill the shoes of Moses. What an awesome task. And yet God said to to Joshua, Joshua, I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. But here's what you've got to do. In chapter 1, he said... This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you need to meditate in it day and night so that you might be careful to do according to all that is written in it. He goes on to say there, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Joshua, it's the word of God that you've got to build your life and ministry on. And that's what we've got to do. And that's what they were doing at Philadelphia. And God said to the church at Philadelphia, well done, you have kept my word. They were doers of the word. Sir Leonard Wood once visited the king of France and the king was so pleased with him that he invited him to dinner the next day. Sir Leonard went to the palace and the king met him in one of the halls. He said, why, Sir Leonard, I didn't expect to see you. How is it that you're here? And Sir Leonard replied, did your majesty not invite me to dinner with you today? And the king replied, yes, but you didn't answer my invitation. It was then that Sir Leonard Wood wisely said, a king's invitation is never simply to be answered, but only to be obeyed. That was the attitude at Philadelphia, to the Word of God. It was not to be compromised. It was not to be negotiated. It was simply to be obeyed. And Jesus said that when we obey His commandments, we show our love. And He went on to say that He would reveal Himself to the one who obeyed His commands. Maybe God never speaks to you in a fresh way anymore in your Christian life because you've not even obeyed what He's told you in His love letter. If you've not already, if your life is not in some sense a passion to obey what God's told you in His love letter, why should God work in our life in any kind of fresh way. We need to think about that. In Acts 2:42 it said that it said of the early church that they continued in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. It's no wonder God used the early church the way he did. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. And that's what they had done at Philadelphia They had kept his word And then thirdly he says you've not denied my name You know there are more subtle ways to deny the name of Jesus Christ Than sometimes we think of Sometimes we think oh to deny the name of Jesus Christ It's just got to be a blatant denial Most times it's more subtle than that. For example, maybe you've been to a service before where the name of Jesus was not even mentioned. I'll never forget one of my mentors in ministry, a very respected older Christian man, went to a funeral in our town on one occasion, went to a funeral of a Christian man at a Christian church, and here was a so-called Christian minister that stood up to preach the guy's funeral. And, And this friend of mine came back and he was grieved in his heart. He said, Scott, you would never have even known it was a Christian service. Jesus wasn't mentioned one time. There there was no thought anywhere in the service of the hope that we have as Christians. No mention of the cross, no mention of redemption, forgiveness of sins. No mention of the resurrection. No mention that because Christ is raised, those in Christ will be raised too. There was none of that. He said it was a service that literally a, a Buddhist priest or a Hindu priest or anybody for that matter could have stood up and preached Tragic, sad So many to, today in just even subtle ways deny the name of Jesus Folks, I I mean, I think about one obvious thing in our prayers, in public prayers, when we get done with our prayers. What do we say? In Jesus' name. Amen. Why are people so bashful about using the name of Jesus? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. We need to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. The apostle said in Acts 4.12 There is no other name given uh, under heaven among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. Jesus said uh, in the gospels, he said If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. At Philadelphia, they had not denied Jesus Look at the promise That he speaks of Concerning that He tells them in verse 8 I've put before you an open door Have have you ever noticed how God Blesses those who are faithful with what they have Again that parable In Matthew 25 uh, The master said take the one Talent from the one to whom it was Given and give it to him Who has five What? Take the talent from the guy who only had one and give it to the guy who had five? That doesn't seem fair, but yet it is fair. Because the guy with one wasn't faithful with the one. The guy with five was faithful with five. And so the master said, take the the talent, the one talent from the guy with just one and give it to the guy that I know will use it faithfully. Have you ever stopped to think how some believers or some churches it's like God is just showering blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon some fellowships and they just seem to have so much while others have so few. Could it be this principle right here being worked out? If we want God to shower us with more blessings then we've got to be good stewards and we've got to be faithful with what God has already given us. Why should we want more if we're not even using what we've got faithfully, right? Some people just sit around and they dream about what they don't have and they're ignoring what they do have. They're dreaming, they're dreaming about, oh, I could do this for the Lord or I could do that If I, if I only had this gift or this capability or, or this resource Man, I'd do this or that You know what you would do if you had more? You would do with more exactly what you're doing with what you have And in some cases, maybe, just maybe something to think about Maybe that's sometimes why God doesn't bless us with more because, again, in some way we might be squandering in our life what we have. I've known people sit around and just moan and complain about what wasn't coming their way. What they didn't have this, this principle works in the world too I'll, I'll never forget I told you before About going through high school and college For a number of years uh, I was an employee with uh, with Harris Teeter Great company to work for Uh And and there being an employee with with Harris Teeter, uh, there was this guy that I worked alongside of. He was a lousy worker. and This guy was probably 30. Here I was probably 17, 18, 19. This guy was a lousy worker, and he would always bellyache because it would come promotion time or raise time. And he'd always complain, they're not doing more for me. They're not giving me the raise I want or the promotion I want. And finally, I got so sick and tired of it. I mean, I really got my belly full of hearing this guy gripe and complain all the time. I said, David, you are a lousy worker. You're lazy. you got a bad attitude about this place. You've got a bad attitude about everything. You've got the sorriest work ethic. I said, maybe if you'd work a little bit, they'd recognize that, give you a raise or a promotion. He said, I'm not going to work harder until they give me the promotion and the raise first. I said, well, David, in that case, you'll probably go no further. I left and went away to college. And I would assume, unless David changed in his attitude and work ethic, he probably has gone no further in life. Be faithful with what you have. And God said said to Philadelphia, you're faithful with what I've given you. And my promise is that I'm going to enlarge your tent. I'm going to enlarge your opportunities. You want a bigger Sunday school class? I tell you what, prepare for those two people just like you would prepare if you had 200 people in that class. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart and see what God does. I think of Paul. Here Paul was a man, and just read about the life of Paul in the book of Acts. God would maybe close one door to Paul in one location, but he never closed one door without opening a door somewhere else. Why? Because Paul was always faithful to go and do exactly what God called him to do. And so you know what God continued to do in the life of the apostle Paul? He just kept opening doors all over the place for Paul. Because again, Paul was Obedient. I want to challenge you to try that in your own spiritual life Ask God to help you be faithful and, and a true witness in your circles of influence Begin to pray for the people around you Be a missionary to the people around you Every chance you get to impact somebody for Christ, do so Don't just sit around and think, man, you know what, I'd I'd love to go to South America sometime on a mission trip or Africa. Boy, if I went to a place like that, boy, I'd I'd be so faithful at soul winning. Start right here at home. Be a soul winner. Be faithful right here. And again, God will open doors. God will open doors. He says here that he's the one who has the keys that can lock and unlock doors. If you're unfaithful, Jesus can lock doors. And If you're faithful, he can unlock doors. He's the one with the authority to do that. And the church at Philadelphia could have the assurance that he was going to continue to unlock doors for them. And then I want you to notice in verse 10, he gives them a great promise also Keep that he's going to keep them. I'm not going to comment much here because in later messages we'll talk more about this verse. But depending on what your stand in eschatology is, is how you're going to interpret this verse. When he says he's going to keep them from the hour of trial about to come upon the whole earth, if you're a pre-trib pre-millennial person. You believe what this means is God is going to rapture the church out of here before tribulation breaks out on the earth. That's my position and I hope I'm right. If you believe the church is going to go through the tribulation Then then you would interpret the preposition in this verse Because see it can be interpreted either way You would interpret the the preposition as meaning That God is not going to take you out But he's going to protect you from within that trial and trouble and tribulation That as you go through all the suffering that's coming upon the earth And all the wrath that's being poured out on the earth God's going to protect you in the midst midst of it the way he protected Israel when they were in Egypt and God poured the plagues out on Egypt and yet the Israelites didn't experience those plagues still viable way, very good way to interpret this verse again just depends on whichever way what what your eschatology is But right now, for the sake of the message this morning, I just want you to see what the promise is. The promise is, regardless of which camp you fall down into, what's the promise? Protection. Either way, God's people will have ultimate protection. And don't miss that big promise. Now thirdly, the challenge. Look at verse 11. In verse 11 he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Folks, what does the Lord say to a group of people that have been faithful? To all the other churches, there there was words of correction. They needed to repent and they needed to get something right that was wrong. They needed to make a change in some area. Again, either morally or or ethically, or theologically, they needed to make some kind of urgent change. But again, to Philadelphia, the word's a word of commendation. The Lord's saying, well done. So what does He challenge a church where He says, well done? What's He challenge them to continue to do for the future? He simply challenges them to hold fast what they have. Isn't that appropriate? That, that word is so very appropriate He goes on to warn them that they need to hold fast what they have so that nobody can take their crown. There's all sorts of schemes that the devil will use to knock the faithful off course to get them to lose their testimony and get them to lose their reward. Now when he speaks of not letting somebody take their crown, he's not saying they're going to lose their salvation. He's saying they'll lose their reward. He's warning them against letting anybody steal their reward. It's just like what Paul said to the Galatians. Somebody had cut in on them. He said you started well but you were running the race well. And then here came these Judaizers. These Judaizers were preaching a message of the law. That Jesus wasn't enough. That you needed to add the law and circumcision to Jesus. Paul came preaching Jesus. The Judaizers came in and added all these other things to Jesus. And and, and Paul is saying you are running your race so well and it's like you allowed somebody to cut in on you and knock you off course. What he's saying to Philadelphia, don't let that happen. It can happen in a Christian's life. Things can happen in a Christian's life. The loss of a loved one, the loss of a spouse, marital problems, a child's waywardness and rebellion, a financial loss, a bankruptcy. Believers can allow things to cut in on them and knock them off course and he's saying don't let that happen. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to what you have till I come. On one occasion, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you have returned, strengthen the brethren. You see what Satan meant for evil, God used for good. There's no trial you go through. There's no person you encounter that is worth causing you to lose your reward. Press on. Second challenge, rides piggyback with that one, persevere. I think it bears repeating again that God's not only just concerned with a good start, but a good finish. In fact, in the Bible, the Bible talks about one of the surest signs of salvation. A genuine walk with God. A a genuine salvation experience. One of the highlights of a genuine salvation experience is that a person will continue in the faith. Somebody who drops by the wayside might be an indication that they were never even truly born again to begin with persevere and then finally in closing one other promise he gives at this point in the narrative in verse 12 he makes a promise to them a wonderful promise to them that was so unique to the people there at Philadelphia he said I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God remember what I said at the beginning of the message about earthquakes and those who would move outside of town when they would build new dwellings they would put extra columns, extra pillars in uh, to their to their household to, to support the walls and the ceilings in case other disasters happened. Well he's saying to the faithful believers at, at Philadelphia you're going to be like a pillar in the temple of God one day. What's that a statement of? That's a statement of security. Security. Amen. I want to ask you to bow with me in prayer. And as you do, I simply want to challenge you this morning to be faithful. You you might be sitting here this morning thinking that you're weak. That you have very little to offer to anybody, much less to the Lord. But I want to remind you, if you're a child of God, God has gifted you in some way. And no matter how small or insignificant you may feel, God wants to use you. God specializes in using small things. Don't despise small things. Give Him your insignificance. Give Him your weakness. He's strong when we're weak. Secondly, I want to challenge you also to hold fast to God's Word. It it seems like these days we're living in, God is shaking all kinds of foundations in the world. But His Word will be an anchor of hope to you. Not only an anchor of hope, but His Word will be a roadmap to you. Read it, study it, obey it. And if you'll do that, just like Psalm 1 says, your life will be fruitful. So hold fast to God's Word. I want to challenge you, thirdly, not to allow anything or anyone to take you away from what God is doing in your life. Satan will send things into your life to sift you and discourage you. Don't let him steal your reward. Don't let him do it. And finally, I want to challenge you to look at your opportunities. Look at the open doors God has given you to share the gospel and to serve Christ. Walk through those doors with obedience. Why should you expect God to give you more opportunities if you're not even being a good steward with those you already have? Father, speak to your people this morning. Lord, help us to realize that when we put everything we are and everything we have into your hands and we're faithful with your word, we hold fast your word, we don't deny the name of Christ. We continue to be men, of, men and women of conviction and courage. Wise stewards using the opportunities that we already have, the resources we already have. God, you've promised that you'll continue to use us. May you find us faithful that when we stand before the beam of seat of Christ one day, we could hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name I pray.